Get to a cause, good days to you, I'll tell Of how the good old union is coming here to dwell Tell me which side are you on? Which side are you on? Which side are you on? Hello everyone, I'm Chloe Brooks. I'm the Labour Students representative for the Northwest region. I'm really pleased to be part of this event, bringing together people to discuss the NHS at 75 and how we can repair and restore it after 13 years of austerity. I'm pleased to say hundreds of you have registered their interest in advance of this event and hundreds more have signed up for the whole of the Rise Festival 2023. The current crisis in the NHS has caused needless suffering for millions. People are dying on record high waiting lists and going too long without urgent treatment. But we're here today to say it doesn't have to be like this. There are alternatives. These alternatives can ensure the NHS has the funds it needs, end the staffing crisis, and crucially, stop the flow of cash to the private sector and invest in rebuilding the NHS, all of us instead. Tonight, we're bringing together some really important voices in that struggle to save our NHS, and also in terms of articulating what socialist agenda for the future of our NHS looks like. As the event goes on, please donate at the link provided so Arise can continue hosting these really important events and support the other campaigns and links put in the chat throughout the event. And if you haven't done so already, make sure to buy a ticket for the whole of Arise, a festival of left ideas. We need to sell hundreds more tickets to cover the cost of the amazing month we've come, we have coming up. So I'm really pleased now to move on to our speakers. So our first speaker is John Puntis, who's joining us from Doctors for the NHS. John, if you'd like to go ahead. Yes, thank you very much, and uh, many thanks for the invitation. Uh, my apologies that I, I have to be at another meeting, so I can't stay to the end. Um, Labour's plans for the NHS are still somewhat sketchy, but uh, it seems to see reform rather than investment as the way forward for the NHS. Um, and I think uh, this is certainly mistaken. And I, I want to briefly consider why technology uh, using the private sector and relying on strategies to bring about a reduction in demand through prevention of illness are not the answer to the current pressing problems such as GP access, huge waiting lists, massive staff vacancies, uh, etc. And really what's absolutely crucial is that there's a coherent workforce plan coupled with very significant investment. Uh, without this, there's no way to recovery of services. And the Labour Party needs to present its own coherent plans for a capital renewal programme, um, not, not that's based around self-imposed fiscal limits, um, but that's based on how do we meet long-term needs. Um, there's around 140,000 vacancies uh, in the NHS at the moment, so the commitment to increasing staff is definitely welcome. Um, but this is going to take quite a while to achieve. And in the meantime, the issue of retention of staff has to be addressed. Uh, this does mean significant pay rise and also attention to uh, working conditions. Uh, on the issue of GPs, making GPs salaried employees is something that's favoured by doctors in Unite, for example, but only if they're employed by the NHS as a fully publicly funded uh, and provided system, and only if there's a considerable increase in the number of GPs uh, and investment in primary care facilities and technology. I mean, the US 
corporation, Centene, already has uh, uh, private um, contracts for uh, GP services with half a million patients in the UK. Uh, and we don't want GPs being employed as salaried employees by big private companies like that, only by a publicly funded NHS. I mean, most people, perhaps with the exception of the government, are very well aware of the problems of the NHS at the moment. And a few statistics to show how thing, things are really bad. For example, the College of Emergency Medicine uh, has estimated that there are 500 deaths literally every week because of difficulty getting sick patients out of emergency departments to overfull uh, wards. Uh, there's tens of thousands of people who are being harmed by uh, ambulance delays, and there were something like 500 deaths directly attributable to ambulance delays last year. In October last year, hospital waiting lists had hit a record high of 7.2 million. So we've never been anywhere near that figure before. And almost half a million people waiting over a year. Uh, in that month alone, there were 38,000 people who spent more than 12 hours on trolleys in A&E once a decision had been made that they needed admission. And then if you look at things like urgent cancer referrals, you find that... Um, 39% uh, of patients are waiting longer than the target two months. Now, the Department of Health and Social Care commissioned a report to help it understand how this situation had arisen. Uh, and um, the King's Fund concluded that it was years of Tory neglect and denying funding to the health service while failing to address its growing workforce crisis, um, which had left it with too few staff too little equipment and too many outdated buildings. So that was the answer it got. And that's a very good answer, I think. Nine million people are now economically inactive with two and a half million giving long-term sickness as the reason. And I think we should accept, as was accepted in 1948, that we cannot have a strong economy unless we have a strong health and care service. Uh, this comes first, it's not the other way around. Um, strong services first, uh, and then benefits to the economy. Um, all governments think that technology, or all parties think technology is the answer to the NHS problems. And I think they always exaggerate it uh, and haven't thought it through in detail. Of course, the NHS is always embracing new technology. But if we look at one of the big ideas at the moment being pushed by government, Department of Health, it's virtual wards or hospital at home. So the idea is that you're hooked up to monitors at home and then there's staff in hospital who are monitoring you uh, from uh, a distant point uh, and then giving you advice. And there's also staff coming in to treat you and look after you at home. And the target is to have uh, 10,000 of those beds in place uh, by the autumn. Uh, government even said that this represents the equivalent of seven new district general hospitals. Well, who wouldn't like to be looked after at, at their own home when they're ill? But there's lots of reasons for being cautious about this as a sort of technological solution. Uh, ideally, it involves skilled nurses and paramedics providing hands-on care in patients' homes with teams working alongside the patient carers.
And if this is really about providing hospital level care at home, but without the economies of scale that you would have in a hospital, is it really going to be cheaper? Almost certainly not. Uh, in making carers active team members, how much of the burden of care falls to them? And what do they think about it? What happens when remote monitoring shows you deteriorating in the middle of the night? And most crucially, most crucially, where will the team members actually come from, given the NHS is in the midst of its worst staffing crisis ever? Uh, and the government are very upbeat about this technological solution, uh, alternative to not providing more beds. Um, but NHS providers are pointing out it's all well and good, but we don't have the staff to do it. Guidance from NHS England over virtual beds or hospital at home doesn't include clear definitions of what virtual wards can and cannot do, the amount of money that you need in terms of staff, uh, including skill mixes, the type of equipment that's required. And too many people believe technical solutions offer a simple answer to chronic underinvestment, and that's just not the case. Moving on to whether use of the private sector is a, is a good idea. The private sector will not and cannot come to the aid of the NHS. It's doctors or NHS doctors working in their spare time. There is only one pool of health professionals in the UK. And unless that pool expands, pushing patients into the private sector won't make a significant dent in when waiting lists. Small numbers of beds, lack of intensive care facilities, inadequate medical cover at night, these are the characteristic features of private hospitals, and they add up to systemic safety risks. The sector was given two billion handout during the pandemic uh, for doing relatively little, despite the NHS actually begging for help. It also claimed 72 million in furlough payments. Private providers are parasitic on the NHS, and they're not cost minimizers, they are profit maximizers, and investing further in the private sector is not the answer to our current crisis. What about prevention? Well, reducing demand through effective preventive strategies has been a holy grail for politicians for many years. The Marmot Review laid out six areas in which action is required if we are to create the social conditions to reduce avoidable and unfair inequalities in health, give every child the best start in life, education and long life, lifelong learning, employment and working conditions, minimum income for healthy living, healthy and sustainable housing and communities, and a social determinants approach to disease prevention. Considerable investment in a public health system will be required and health inequalities factored into all government policy making. So while essential in terms of social justice, None of this will happen quickly in terms of reducing NHS workload. So just to conclude now, I think we, we need a different philosophy in relation to health and care, and key pledges should include investing much more in disease prevention, in mental health support, in support for independent living for people with disabilities, and social care that contribute to a healthy population and economic prosperity. People must get the help they need efficiently, with dignity, with ease. Uh, our health and care support services must be able to absorb surges in demand, as we saw with the pandemic, 
This requires reserve capacity and flexible strategic long-term planning. We need to build a consensus involving the public and all key stakeholders based on core values of decency, security, justice, and compassion. We must explore and understand the evidence about the level and nature of health needs and how to achieve effectiveness, equity, and resilience in services. And the myths that represent investment in healthcare as a cost rather than an asset, that it's unaffordable, that privatization brings efficiency, and that public health is solely about personal choice, all these have to be dispelled. We must insist that there is no route to a better NHS that's not an appropriately funded NHS, and that to think otherwise is simply a delusion. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for that, John. I think you're completely right when you say the private sector is not going to come to our aid here. You said some really interesting things. I didn't actually know about some of the virtual NHS stuff, which is just pretty shocking. So next, we've got a few words from Logan Williams, who's an organiser, or a volunteer with today's organisers at RISE Festival. Hi, all. Just I'll try and keep this as brief as I can. I'm aware we've got some fantastic speakers, and I'm sure you want to hear from them rather than me constantly. And I'm here today, as Chloe said, that to try and talk to you about this fantastic festival we've been putting on so far the last week and a bit. And so far, it's been fantastic, and it promises to be even better going forward. So far, we've had events on Right to the Resist. We've had a, we've had Gramsci, we've had Ireland. And coming up, we have even bigger and better things from Jeremy Corbyn and some huge international guests, Labour Party democracy. But we can't do all of this without you guys. We need you guys to be able to try and buy some tickets, as, much, as many as we can, to try and cover the cost so that we can keep building this event and keep it getting bigger and big, bigger and better and offer that alternative, which I think the people of Britain are so clearly demanding. And so just to try and point you to some of our upcoming events, which I think are quite pressing for the moment. So let's start off with some Labour Party democracy, which I think anyone's been watching the news is probably one of the most pressing issues in facing the Labour Party at the moment. But we're here from speakers from Mick Whelan, General Secretary of ASLA, to John Trickett, and, and a few other campaigners from Dis Chair of Disability Labour, all the way over to Young Labour. And then we then have one on socialist economics, which is trying to work out our alternative platform to try and tackle those cuts, which will have Richard Bergen and Oslam Onoran, who's one of our fantastic key people who's helped work with us in the past and has worked with the Labour team under Corbyn to try and form that alternative. So it'd be a really fantastic event, which I'm sure lots of you'd be interested in. So just to come back again, just to keep that reminder going, as I'm sure it's coming up in the chat, please, please support us in any way you can. Either donate if you can't afford a full ticket, but they, are, they do start at £4. Or if you can, please do buy a ticket for the full horizon. It will really help us. These, cost, these online meetings do cost a little bit to be able to put on and we are a volunteer run team. So anything you can give to help us keep building this alternative will be excellent. Well, let's go back to our excellent speakers now because I'm sure they are ready to try and create some anger at the state of the NHS and how we can form that alternative. Thank you. Thanks for that, Logan. We've got over 200 people with us live right now. So any support any of you can offer um, to Arise would be absolutely fantastic. 
So next up, we've got Nadia Whitten, who's the MP for Nottingham East, a fellow Young Labour member and a powerful voice on issues around the NHS and social care. Nadia, if you want to take it away. Thank you so much, Chloe, and thank you for inviting me to speak on a topic that is so important and couldn't be more pressing. Um, we do have to vote in a moment, and I can see that we're on front bench wind-ups, so hopefully I'll be able to get through as much of this as I can, um, but I know you've got other great speakers as well. I just want to start off with an, with an example in my constituency that illustrates just how bad the, the situation in the NHS is. So last winter, I was contacted by the son of a 95-year-old constituent, and his dad had spent 24 hours waiting in A&E, sitting in a wheelchair and then in a bed in a corridor in excruciating pain. And by the time he left, he'd been there for 41 hours, so almost two whole days. Now, that experience would be grueling for anyone, but for a 95-year-old to be put through this, I think just demonstrates how broken our healthcare system has become. I mean, everywhere you turn, the NHS is, is breaking at the seams, whether that's how difficult it is to get an appointment with a GP or a dentist, waiting lists being years long, ambulance delays, or record numbers at A&E. Now, we've all heard the Tories blame COVID for this, but the NHS was already under severe pressure before the pandemic. Now they blame the strikes, but nurses and junior doctors and other staff are striking in response to the crisis, not the other way around. Um, I'm reminded of the uh, the famous quote from T.S. Eliot when, when he said that the world would end not with a bang, but with a whimper, because I think in many ways the same could apply to our NHS. What we're seeing is a slow death by a thousand cuts, 13 years of Tory underfunding, piecemeal, back, piecemeal backdoor privatisation, staff shortages, people unable to access healthcare when they need it. I mean, from personal experience, I know that only too well, because when I needed mental health support because of my own diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder, I wasn't able to access that on the NHS. I didn't want to go private, but I knew that that would be the only way of, of getting timely, effective treatment that would enable me to go back to work. But while I, I was, you know, currently as an, an MP in, in the position financially to be able to pay for this, millions of people can't, and nor should they have to. So they wait and wait, their mental health gets worse, they get to crisis points, end up in A&E, and then the pressure on the system intensifies and creates this vicious cycle that we've just got to end. I also want to talk about something else fueling our crisis, um, the crisis in the NHS, because this barely receives the attention and respect that it deserves, and that's social care. So we have a, a growing elderly population and social care funding is just not keeping up. There are around 165,000 vacancies in the sector. That's one in 10 roles going unfilled. And it's been described as the greatest workforce crisis that the care sector has ever experienced. It's threatening the quality of care and the availability of care for those who need it. And that in turn, that underfunding and understaffing is sending a ripple effect through the whole of the NHS. It's really important, it's, it's absolutely crucial that um, 
patients can be discharged safely from hospital to appropriate social care settings. But the absence of care packages for people to be able to either return home or to be moved to a care home is the main reason why medically fit patients are stuck in hospital for longer than they need to be, which in turn creates a lack of beds, which creates overcrowded A&Es, longer ambulance handover times, delays responding to 999 calls and so on. And without serious change, this situation is only going to get so much worse. The Health and Social Care Select Committee reported that an extra 490,000 jobs would be needed in social care by the early part of the 2030s. That's less than 10 years away. So I, I guess the the main message really is we can't fix our NHS crisis without fixing our social care crisis. So what does the government need to do? Well, it needs to increase investment in social care. That includes boosting wages for, for people who provide care. So I've been proud to support calls from the GMB, Unison and the TUC for a £15 an hour minimum wage for care workers. Um, and I, I think that should go beyond care workers and be the minimum wage for all workers. That would make a huge difference in alleviating pressure in the immediate term. But in the long term and the medium term, to really tackle this crisis, we need a universal social care system. That means a national care service like our NHS that is free at the point of use, fully public and democratically run, and that has, instead of the, the interests of profiteers at its heart, the, the needs of care recipients and workers at its heart. And then when we look at the NHS, the solutions there aren't dissimilar either. In the short term, we need emergency funding right now to stop the NHS collapsing this winter. Staff need the above inflation pay rise that they've been calling for and that they deserve. Like social care, that would tackle poverty pay. It would aid the retention and recruitment crisis. Um, was what they've what they've currently got is a real terms pay cut um, and then in the long term we need to fight for an for an NHS that is fully funded publicly owned publicly run publicly accountable for the benefit of patients and never private shareholders of course all of this sounds quite expensive and the Tories will tell us that that the money isn't available but the money is there it's just in the pockets of the super rich it's hoarded in property portfolios and squirreled away in offshore bank accounts but that money never it never trickles down it never trickles into our public services but with the the political will we can tax wealth far more effectively than we currently do we can close loopholes and we can make millionaires pay their fair share i i just want to finish by saying uh kind of looking back at Labour history, it was from the ashes of World War II that a Labour government created our NHS. And if they could build it from scratch then, when against huge opposition, um, then I firmly believe that we can do what it takes to save it today. Thanks. Thanks so much, Nadia. You make some amazing points and it's really kind of great that we've still got strong socialist voices in Parliament like yourself and 
the image of that you evoked of T.S. Eliot, I think was really powerful there as well, with, with the Tories in charge of the NHS, not with a bang, but with a whimper, sadly, that is how we can see it going. So our final speaker today is John Lister from Keep Our NHS Public. He's the co-author of NHS Under Siege and a renowned expert and campaigner on our NHS for decades. So it's really amazing to have you tonight, John. Thank you. And uh, it's quite hard to follow that previous talk because it really took, touched on a lot of uh, a lot of issues. And uh, the danger of having three speakers trying to sort of talk about how to solve the problems of the NHS is we, we can wind up saying pretty much the same thing. So I hope I'll put things slightly differently, maybe. But we're all here tonight because we know the NHS has been reduced to a state of chronic crisis by 13 miserable years of Tory austerity, underfunding, privatisation and, of course, all the plunder during the COVID uh, period of the uh, crony contracts. We all depend on the NHS. It's the only provider of emergency care and it's the only provider with a historic commitment to treat all who need care. So to defend it and restore it and improve it, we need a change of government. But most of all, we need a change of policy to make sure the NHS gets the immediate cash injection needed to kickstart its revival. It's not clever tactics for Labour to be focused on policies so close to the Tory line that the right-wing press and private sector can claim there's a cross-party consensus, especially when the consensus is on greater use of private hospitals to treat NHS patients. This policy was tried by Tony Blair's government in the 2000s and it wasted millions. It created a new parasitic so-called independent sector that was always entirely dependent on NHS funding, it cost more per patient and it drained money from the NHS budgets, but failed to make any significant difference to waiting lists because the lion's share of the work reducing waiting times was done by NHS hospitals. There's no reason to think it would work any differently now. The Health Foundation and the NHS Confederation have questioned whether sending the least complex cases to small private hospitals really adds any extra capacity rather than diverting treatment from one place to another. NHS providers have warned that because the private sector can only take the lowest risk patients, those with the greatest health needs wind up waiting longer for inadequate numbers of NHS beds. This is especially true when there's now around one frontline bed in six in England is filled with COVID patients or with medically fit patients who can't be discharged for lack of community health and social care, as Nadia was talking about. If you want more recent proof that the uh, privatisation of elective care is a costly and ineffective solution to waiting lists, a new report has just analysed the results of a three-year experiment by the right-wing government in Alberta, Canada, seeking to privatise 30% of elective operations. It increased costs and it led to less surgical treatments being done, fewer specialist operations in public hospitals, public sector oper operating theatres standing idle and longer waits for patients. And if anyone thinks it's in any way a progressive policy, ask why it's most stridently embraced at the moment by right-wing parties, the Tories in Alberta, Ontario, and now Sunak's Tories in England. If we want to expand capacity of the NHS, the cheapest and most efficient way to do so is to expand the NHS itself, not build another smaller profit-centred alternative. And this is even more true of mental health, where rampant, scandalous expansion of poor quality private sector care since 2010 has flowed directly from the austerity squeeze and the lack of capital to expand NHS capacity. If we're talking seriously about integration of services, that starting point should be the starting point should be integrating them within the NHS rather than fragmenting into multiple contracts. Another cross-party consensus seems to have emerged also on primary care and community services. This is another puzzle. Figures show three and a half thousand English GPs left primary care in the last 12 months, almost half of them citing burnout as a reason. Since 2012-13, England has a 7% increase in population, a 20% increase in GP workload but a 12% decrease in real terms funding for GP services. 
And it's not just GPs have been walking away not replaced. We've seen a 42% reduction in district nurses, a 30% reduction in health visitors, a 23% cut in learning disability nurses, 25% fewer school nurses. And while we're talking about resources in the community in primary care, we've had a 12% reduction in nursing home beds and a 16% reduction in residential home places. So when the Labour Party issues a 20-page mission statement on the NHS and talks repeatedly about moving care out of hospitals and into the community, we have to wonder how the authors think this can be done without a lot more investment, not least to reverse the cuts that have been made to public health and prevention services. How can they deliver the thousands of additional staff they're promising without improving the conditions and pay levels and committing to the necessary spending? There's an indigenous American tribe, I can't remember which one, that actually argues when you're riding a dead horse, the best policy is to dismount. It seems that this message doesn't seem to be getting across. We've got to wonder whether the people advising these, uh, these policies have any idea that health secretaries of both main parties have been flogging exactly the same dead horse for at least 30 years, talking about moving services in the community away from hospitals and, and getting more of it done by primary care. The reality, of course, is, is completely different. And it hasn't happened yet. We can confidently say it won't happen soon because without serious commitment to put the right resources in place, patients gravitate back to the one bit of the NHS they know will be open 24-7 and deal with all comers, and that's the hospital. And, and, and reality is you can't change that without a fundamental change and a significant investment to change the system. And when we say the right resources have to be in place, we have to include the F word, funding. Of course, we've been repeatedly told Labour's plan to train more doctors and professional staff is going to be funded by taxing any slow-witted non-doms who have not up sticks to tax havens in Jersey, Guernsey or the Isle of Man by the time of the next election. But we have to hear, we've yet to hear any convincing argument, any, any convincing commitment to measures that could retain the staff who are now in post to improve the working conditions, staffing levels, mental health and other support for staff who are working under constant pressure. We're yet to hear Labour, the party that brought in the Agenda for Change pay system based on job evaluation in the early 2000s, commit to restoring the real value of today's pay to the equivalent when that scheme was established. We've yet to hear Labour speak up in support of the very reasonable demand of junior doctors for their real terms pay, which has been reduced since 2008, to be restored. It seems accepting long-term continuing pay cuts is another cross-party consensus. So will we keep seeing rising numbers of British trained doctors working overseas? It makes no sense to train more staff unless you're also going to organise to keep them and support them in the NHS for the long term. So what's the essence of what I'm saying? To keep on doing the same thing and hoping it will turn out better next time is a definition of madness. But to promise to do pretty much the same as the Tories and expect it to magically improve the NHS and meet, as Keir Starmer says, all the big NHS targets in five years is political madness. The cross-party consensus is quite probably another reason Labour's own advisers are now warning their policies to the NHS are not cutting through to voters. People want a change. NHS staff know they need a change. They don't want a cross-party consensus and they want an NHS for all rather than the private sector cherry-picking the easiest cases while they struggle to cope with the rest. SOS NHS, Keep Our NHS Public and Health Campaigns Together, supported, as, as I recall, by Nadia as well, have called for a £20 billion cash injection into the NHS to finance a fair pay settlement, tackle the £10 billion backlog maintenance uh, 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 bill, start rebuilding the collapsing hospitals, uh, the, uh, the concrete planks, uh, 14 of them around the country in imminent danger of actually falling down, increase spending on mental health, and to pay for the extra staff the NHS so desperately needs.
This is a tangible, understandable demand. It's a down payment, but it would show intent. We've explained how much more than this could be raised by taxing only the wealthiest. And I know Richard Bergen, who you mentioned earlier, uh, is, is actually one of those who set out a very simple four-point plan to raise significant sums of money simply by taxing the wealthiest people who've become so much wealthier as the majority have got poorer since 2010. And by taxing big business, which has been so merrily stacking up the profits while the cost of living crisis weighs down on millions of families. If the NHS is going to be repaired after the Tory wrecking crew are finally forced out, it will need bold commitments like this, firmly focused on staff, funding and capacity to drive that forward. Let's hope we can get a commitment to that. Thanks so much, John. That was so interesting. I mean, I think it sounds completely right that expand the best way to expand the capacity of the NHS is to actually expand the NHS itself. It's so simple, but it seems to be so difficult for so many people. It's kind of absolutely baffling. Um, so we've got quite a lot of people still joining us, which is fantastic. We've got people coming from Islington to Hull to Paisley to Lewisham, Somerset, Harringay, Edinburgh, West Wales, Loxley, Crystal Palace and Manchester, which is where I'm speaking from today as well. So shout out to whoever's from Manchester here. So I've got a couple of comments that I think we think are really poignant that would be good to kind of read out for everyone. So Dave on Zoom has said the rhino in the room is privatisation, hidden in plain sight. And the reason why the neoliberals allow the NHS to go to pot, then they can raise issues of reform and alternative funding, which I think hits the nail on the head, really. And Stan on Zoom has said the privatisation game needs to be called out. And on similar lines, Dan on YouTube has said, renationalise NHS services and buildings, which I think we all are in agreement here. It, and again, it seems so simple, but so many people just can't seem to see the easy ways that we can kind of help our NHS. So I've got a couple of questions. Um, I know John Lister is, is about for um, a while. I'm not sure how much longer John Punters can join us for. I know you've got to dash off to another meeting. Um, but I've got a couple of questions that I'll just read out and then pose to you guys. So we've got one from Facebook. It says, um, we know that privatisation has crippled our NHS. But how we tackle, how do we tackle the narrative that private providers take the load off our health service that we see from the major parties? I'll read out a couple so you can just kind of make notes. Under Mark Drakeford's leadership, Welsh Labour has sought to ensure that the Americanisation of the NHS didn't creep into NHS Wales. What lessons can the left in England take from their experiences? And also we've got Judith on Zoom said, why is the Labour Party ignoring what its own members voted for at last year's conference? Which I think I'm sure we'd all like an answer to, really. We've also finally got from Annie on Zoom, uh, from Loxie. Um, Annie said, when's the government finally going to renationalise the NHS and fund the NHS properly to eliminate the annual £33 billion debt? I think that's an answer we'd all, a question we'd all like the answer to. So yeah, I'm not sure which of you want to take anything first, take whatever kind of questions you want to take. Well, as I as I as I do have to leave, um, I'm sorry to John, but so I'll butt in and say I'll take the first one. Just to comment on on um, on privatisation. Um, I mean, I I think there are some things which I find myself repeating a lot and one of them was in the talk that I gave and that is you know pri private companies they're not there to reduce costs and make things more efficient 
they're there to uh, make uh, profits. So they're not cost minimizers as they're often portrayed, they're profit maximizers. Uh, and, and a lot of the companies that are now getting involved in the NHS um, that have their uh, homes in America, uh, they're also uh, constantly in the courts being sued for um, gaming the system and for uh, extracting much more money uh, than, than they should do um, uh, for contracts and what have you. So they're a thoroughly bad lot. Uh, and the point about the private companies is that whenever there's a contract with them, some of that money is going to shareholders and it's money that could be used for patient care. Uh, and even people who are kind of not anti-privatization, the, the data that somehow it improves services is, is, just, is just missing. And there's lots of examples of where services have, have deteriorated. So I think we, we have to keep pointing that out. And also this concept that there is a limited pool of surgeons, for example, and they work in the NHS and they do sessions for the private companies. Uh, and if they go and do more work in the private company, their companies, they're not there to do work in the NHS. So you can't have, uh, uh, you can't reduce the waiting list by sending more patients to the private sector, which has very limited capacity. Um, some of the issues I also mentioned about them being unsafe, uh, they're very poor governance arrangements. So if there are problems uh, with uh, patients being injured, for example, uh, they just say, well, that's an NHS matter because the NHS is paying uh, our private uh, company to do this work. It's not our problem. And the surgeons are not employed directly by us. There's all kinds of issues like that. So I think we have to just say that the record of, of uh, private companies is that they're, they're, they have a parasitic relationship with the NHS. Uh, they don't provide the best quality and safe care. And as John emphasized, they take the easy stuff and leave the complex, difficult stuff to the, um, uh, to the NHS. Uh, they also transfer six and a half thousand patients every year back to the NHS, uh, which represents a cost of about 72 million. Uh, and they don't do any staff training. So the, the cost of training staff who then work in the private sector falls to the NHS. And that represents about 8 billion as a subsidy so there's all these arguments that stack up saying it's just a, a bad idea. Thanks, John. It's really interesting again. I mean, I think the use of the word parasitic there is so good. I think that's such a good way to sum up the kind of relationship between private companies and the NHS. It really is like that. And um, I don't know if the other job, if you have anything that kind of related or if you've got your own kind of comments. Yeah. Well, as I, as I said, it's a bit of a joke them claiming to be the independent sector when it's clear that a large number of them in Britain in particular, um, are, are, well, in, in Britain, but it's around the world, actually, a large number of them are dependent on government funding to actually keep them keep them profitable. Um, if, if there's no organic private market that actually can simply sustain the private sector on its own, it's not big enough. And, and, and so the reality is without the NHS funded patients, uh, the private sector struggling, which is why we've had this big pressure put on Rishi Sunak to send more patients to the private sector in the, in the most recent uh, um, um, contortions of this uh, so-called working party on reducing the waiting times. Um, but the private sector saying we've got all this unused capacity 
because actually people can't afford to pay the private prices to use their services. And so unless the NHS sends patients in, those beds are going to stay empty and the profits aren't going to roll in. So it, it, this is not an independent sector at all. It's a, it's a sponsored um, independent sector, sponsored by government funding. And I, I think it's also important to note of, of the private sector, it's something like 40% of the private sector is focused only on cataract operations, which is the simplest of the eye treatments that can be delivered um, uh, 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 through secondary care. And, and all the other eye treatments, of course, remain uh, lumbered onto the NHS and the more expensive and complicated cases. All of the training of the of the people that deliver those services, again, is all done through the NHS. And then the other 30 percent is orthopedics, uh, which, again, is, the, is a big area. So if you take that, the, the, there's a, a whole areas that people actually need operations that the private sector is not remotely interested in delivering and, and it doesn't see as profitable. And I think that's really important to remember as well. The, the um, NHS organisations have been making precisely these points. It's not a solution to very much because most of those more minor cases are, are easily handled within the NHS. And of course, if they're being handled within the NHS, you keep the teams in the hospitals where they're based and they're available to then help out sometimes on emergencies and those other things as well. So it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's an all round lose lose situation for the NHS to be uh, funding the private sector to do work that the NHS doesn't have capacity to do. Because it means the NHS will never have that capacity and the private sector will be take, picking up that money and taking it away and giving it to shareholders where it could be invested in long term NHS capacity for, for going forward. The other thing I just think is worth looking at is, you know, is it possible simply tomorrow to snap our fingers and end the private sector role altogether? And, and the answer is no, it's a really quite complicated question. Because the NHS has been starved of resources for so long, a lot of the private provision that's there is because the NHS doesn't have its own capacity to do these things. It does need a process of investment and expansion in order to do that. Uh, but of course, what we can do is, as contracts come to an end, we can press for those to be actually brought back in-house and the NHS to develop those resources as and when those contracts are, are brought back in-house and so on. And we obviously need that ties in with the need for a whole investment plan uh, to rebuild an, uh, the, the, the NHS frontline capacity. So uh, people asked about NHS uh, Labour conference policy. Um, my recollection of the last couple of motions I've seen as Labour co conference policy is they were composites of a large number of different motions, some of which were saying completely different things from each other and some of which were much more doable than others. And there's one particular one that I recall, and I think it's again being put forward this year, calling for a, a reversal of the integrated care boards uh, and, and for the, that legislation to be rolled back. Um, the, the only problem with that is that if you roll back integrated care boards now, you wind up with cl clinical commissioning groups, which a lot of us spent a lot of time fighting being set up back in 2012. Or you wind up with, you go back further to the primary care trusts, which we fought New Labour setting up in the 2000s, or you get further back than that and the district health authorities, which we opposed in the form they were set up by the Tories back in the, their previous legislation. I think the question is, what is the format that we want uh, the NHS to be uh, organised around? And I think that's rather less important than the resources being made available and the focus on developing the NHS as the uh, provider, first uh, the default provider, and, and, and the one that actually is going to be taking the lead and clearly in, in charge of, 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 of all, all the processes going forward. So I, I, I think you know, some of that, but I, I do think that there are plenty of areas in which that massive composite that was passed a couple of years ago um, could be uh, taken forward by the current leadership of the Labour Party. And clearly their agenda is, is rather different from that. 
and obviously that's something to be sorted out to, to in the in the processes of the Labour Party itself. Thanks so much again, John. Um, yeah, it's just really interesting listening to someone who obviously knows so much about kind of the issues that the NHS is facing. So for those of you who are still joining joining us. Um, this event's hosted by Arise, a festival of left ideas, which goes on throughout June. Thanks so much, everyone, for participating. It's been a really fantastic evening, and thanks to all the volunteers as well. So our key message from today is that we must fight for our NHS. And this also means popularising progressive alternatives that can end the crisis, end privatisation for good, and secure the NHS's future, which means supporting campaigns like Keep Our NHS Public, NHS Workers Say No. Where the Labour front bench won't take the fight to the Tories or put forward those alternatives, we collectively will and must do it anyway. So I've got one final question to pose. To, we've only got John Lister left with us now. I've got one final question to pose to you, which you started to cover a little bit in your answer just then by talking about in-house services. But as Anna on Zoom has said, we're all really passionate about this, but what can we actually do? Well, I mean, you've just said that there's organisations that are campaigning. There's a whole series of events coming up around the anniversary, the 75th anniversary of the NHS, uh, conferences, uh, demonstration in Leeds. There's various events on, on Ju July the 1st, various events where you can actually get organised with local people and start to... I mean, the, a, a thing that's really important and underestimated is just to actually start to track down what's actually happening in your local area. Find out what your local... They call them integrated care boards now. These are the bodies that decide how money is spent in the local area. Look up their board papers and their, what's going on in their board papers. Find out what the issues are that they're going to be discussing or they're continuing to discuss. And look at ways in which they, the, the issues can be raised with local councillors, MPs and others to actually challenge where things are clearly going wrong. We've just had, for example, a, a revelation in, in North East London that, uh, in the local paper there that uh, something like £82 million of cuts have been signed off by the Integrated Care Board, but with no detail at all about where those cuts are going to be made and what the impact is going to be on local people. So we clearly need local councillors right across North East London. We need local MPs to be banging the drum and saying, what the hell is going on here? What, what cuts are going to be made? Spell this out to local people. These are supposed to be the bodies that reflect the needs of local people, and they're clearly instead reflecting the needs of the government to balance the books on a completely unsustainable basis. So, and I think there'll be more and more of that. There's a lot of ICBs around the country are looking at very substantial cuts agendas, so-called impossible levels of savings are required to balance their books this year. And they will be looking at, and Birmingham, for example, has said, we're looking for disinvestment, Birmingham, Solihull, um, and so forth. If they look at disinvestment, what are they gonna pull the funding out of? What impact is that gonna have on people? So we need people keeping tabs on the locally, and telling us as campaigners, and uh, I think I mentioned uh, earlier that I, I'm co-editor of The Lowdown, which is a fortnightly news uh, um, bulletin on the NHS uh, that covers evidence-based information. If you can send us information there, lowdownnhs.info, uh, we, we'll be really pleased to receive it and to use it and to follow up on local stories. I think people getting active, just finding things out would be a huge step forward in actually advancing the, the local campaigns and giving them a real strength and resistance. Because what we do know, people will settle for a lot going by, but if they know a local hospital is going to close, that's probably the thing that will get Mr. and Mrs. Average out of their armchair, maybe away from EastEnders for a little while, and go and march down the road or join a meeting or whatever. It, it's always done it in the past. I'd be really amazed if it wouldn't do it now. 
And what we want is the Labour movement on the right side of this, leading it, rather than watching and wondering what the heck's going on because they haven't been keeping up with things. So let's make sure that we have everybody tooled up and ready to go when there's a case to be fought. Yeah, 100%. I think the kind of Labour movement with a lowercase and a capital mm. um, definitely needs to kind of be getting right in and getting involved with everything. Um, yeah, thanks so much for kind of your time and thanks so much to everyone that's joined this meeting for all your time. If you um, Just a final reminder that you can see in um, the links in the chat what's coming up at a Rice Festival and if you can buy a, a ticket, any support is really, really appreciated to help us keep running events like this. Thanks so much everyone again for joining us. It's been a really fantastic evening. I hope you all have a lovely rest of your evenings and it's as sunny as it is in Manchester. Thanks so much everyone.